you know, when we sing these songs about the king and all his beauty and the other songs that we've sung tonight, it, of course, reminds me of the songbook of Israel, the Psalms. And as I said this morning, and I think it bears repeating, I often think about the fact that one's personal experience in the gathered congregation of the local church and hearing a wonderful Old Testament book like the book of Psalms is such a sweet communal experience because it gives us the opportunity to peer into the choir loft of the children of Israel. They were called upon to sing these songs. They were called upon to worship God in and through these songs because these songs are inspired. 150 of them. We've been going for a long, long time, one sermon per psalm, and we find ourselves tonight in Psalm 83. Psalm 83, a song, a psalm of Asaph, it says. Asaph was a choir director, a choir leader. Perhaps he was the one who was the man who put pen to paper under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and wrote this song. And we're in a section of the Psalms. This is actually book three, and we're fast approaching the end of this particular section of Psalms in five books altogether. And we're fast approaching, as I said, the end of book three, and Psalm 90 will begin for us book four. And that will go for many of the Psalms, and then we'll hit book five. And 150 of these songs are a delight to us. Christians often, even in these days, go through their annual reading through the Bible in a year. And if you're like me, which is what I'm doing this year, I have a little section of that Bible reading that includes Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. And generally, although they tend to break them up if they're longer psalms, I can get a sense each morning or each evening when I either wake up or go to bed and I'm reading these psalms, you can be frustrated like me. You say, frustrated? Why? Well, because I'm the kind of guy that when I read something, I automatically say, what does that mean? What what does that word mean? What what does that phrase mean? What does that sentence consist of? And, and why is it here? And why is it broken up like this? And and, and what does it mean? Now, of course, when you're reading through your Bible and you're doing that and you have a limited amount of time and you're doing it either as you've awakened in the morning or as you're about to go to sleep at night, that's not a time for uh, that kind of study. I, I readily recognize that. I acknowledge that. But one of the frustrating parts of that is if you're only intent on finishing your Bible in a year, having said to yourself or others, well, I did it. I read it all. I read every word of the Bible. You and I, of course, want to read for comprehension, at least to some degree. And when you read for comprehension, and especially in these Psalms, you're going to come across some of them that are songs of imprecation, songs of judgment, 
prayers, imprecatory psalms, where you find Israel asking God to destroy another group of people. And if you're like me, you're reading along, and perhaps I might read Psalm 83 in my quote-unquote devotional reading for the reading through the Bible in a year, and I'll read Psalm 83, and one of the first things I say is, ouch, that seems pretty harsh. When you're reading along and you hear the psalmist talk about dealing with a rogue nation and you want to ask God to wipe them out and you hear that, you read that, you try to understand that, and you're right up against the ideal of, well, wait a minute, what about Jesus' love ethic? What about Jesus, meek and mild? Why are these psalms even in our Bibles? Because they seem to be at times so very harsh. There's a psalm that says that they're praying is Israel for the Babylonians, the babies of the Babylonians to be dashed against the rocks. You hear that, you read that, and you say, that sounds so very unchristian. Well, you have to work your way through that. You have to understand what these psalms are. And if you're only doing your Bible reading each day and you come to Psalm 83, for instance, and you read that, and of course I know you're checking the box that you've read it, but If you're reading for comprehension, or at least you're trying to think about it for 10 or 15 minutes or so, you're asking the question, what's what's going on here? What's the context? What's happening? And in this particular book three, we're in a whole section of the Psalms in which not only the songs of imprecation are listed, not all of them, but some of them, but there are also these Psalms, and particularly Psalm 83 as an example, are lament Psalms. They're lamenting, mourning, grieving. And one of the things that it appears to be, according to verse 1, is that the psalmist, Asaph, is leading the Israelites to sing about God's seeming silence. Israel's being attacked. And because they're being attacked, it seems on all sides, and we'll talk about that in a moment, I think you and I would be one of those saying to ourselves, God, where are you? Our children are being murdered. Our homes are being destroyed. Life is not what we're wanting right now. We're under siege and we're hurting. Why are you not coming and helping? I guess I could ask the question for us tonight, What do you do? What do I do when God seems so very silent? Perhaps it's not related to the idea of your home being destroyed or your children being harassed or your country's at war. Maybe it's not anything like that. Maybe it's something like this. I've been praying to you, Lord, for a long, long time about this particular request of mine, and I just simply don't have an answer, at least the one I'm looking for. Where are you? Why do you seem so silent? When I pray, it seems as though the heavens are just like brass. My prayers go up and they, they hit somewhere 
on the lower part of heaven, it seems, and bounce right back to me. Seemingly, they're never really getting into the very heart of God, or so it seems. That's what's going on here in Psalm 83. Now, you're not going to get all of that, of course, in your devotional reading for the morning. You have to study it. You have to really go through a sense of reading it over and over and over again. What's the sense of what's going on here? Why is Israel saying about their God that he seems to be nowhere around and so very silent when we're in such a predicament? Well, if you're like me, and if I'm like you, and I think we are, here's some uh, fatherly, maybe grandfatherly now since my 11th grandchild's on the way. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep searching. Keep pounding. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking to find this God who seems ever so silent. Seek Him all the more earnestly. Redouble your efforts. Keep knocking. Keep searching. Keep willing. Keep praying. I think this is the essence of the understanding of Psalm 83. Listen to it as I read. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gibal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia, the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot, Selah. Do to them as you did to Midian and uh, to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmuna who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Oh, my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempests and terrify them with your hurricanes. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth.
My friends, there is no doubt this is a lament psalm, right? No doubt. They're lamenting, they're hurting, they're they're grieving, they're bereaved, they're stunned. And what's worse than all that, they believe God is stone silent. And it's not just a lament psalm, it's fashioned, as I said at the beginning, an imprecatory psalm, just simply meaning that the people of God are asking their God, the one and only true God, to right the wrongs that are being done against the people of God. If we're your people, then why isn't the God of such a people helping us, coming to our aid, rescuing us? There are people here to destroy. They're at the door. God, help us. I mean, all of the unbelieving people groups of the world, at least those at that time, seem to be intent on surrounding Israel and wiping the people of God off the face of the earth, extinguishing them from existence. That's in this psalm. So here's what I did. I sat with my Bible like you would sit with yours, and I said, what are the various facets of this prayer itself? What could we do as we sit here tonight and try to determine in our hearts, how does this apply to me? What, what does this psalm mean in my context? Well, I want to talk about the idea of a lament psalm, and I have to some degree already, and I do want to accentuate what it talks about here when it talks about crying out to God that He would listen and hear and respond with the judgment of those who want to wipe out the people of God. But the thing I want to focus in on tonight more than anything else is our prayer life. How do I take Psalm 83, for instance, and use it in my own prayer life? Because if you are like me, I don't want to just check the box that I've read my Bible for that morning and Psalm 83 was the psalm reading for that day, and I don't just want to read that and say, Well, at least I could say I've read Psalm 83 at least once in my life. What I'd rather like to say is this, how does Psalm 83 make it in my own prayer life? What does it matter that Psalm 83 is in my Bible? It certainly mattered for the children of Israel, and it certainly, most certainly matters to God because He put it right here. And I believe even providentially arranged it as a collection of psalms right here in this section, book 3, Psalm 83, for this time, this place, and in God's providence and the history of the church, we're studying it tonight. I don't think there's any mistake about it. How does Psalm 83 hit me? What can I take away tonight from Psalm 83? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you seven facets seven facets of Psalm 83 as to its prayer. I mean, this is a song. This is a worship experience. This is a corporate dynamic. And the the Jews of this day, they are being called upon to sing, but they're also, through this song, called upon to pray. This is a 
This is a prayer song. This is a prayer time. This is a corporate gathering so as to understand not only the prayer in this psalm, but my prayers. My prayers. Here's number one of the various facets of this prayer of Psalm 83. Let's call it the prayer's plea. The prayer's plea. This is the plea of the prayer of Psalm 83. What is the plea? Well, verse 1 tells you very, very clearly that Israel is to plea for God's enemies to be soundly defeated by God Himself. That's the plea of the prayer. That God's enemies, they're praying for, would be soundly defeated by God Himself. That's what verse 1 says. Oh, God, do not keep silence. Do not be in the pattern of silence toward your people. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. You and I, it probably, especially if we're older, use that very phrase. Maybe this is the original place it came from. Either hold your peace or don't hold your peace. Sometimes that appears with the old guys officiating a wedding. If there should be any reason for someone objecting to this couple being married, then don't hold your peace. This is, this is what the psalmist is asking for. He's pleading with God. This is the prayer's plea. Why aren't you doing something? Here's what's encouraging to me about that. I mean, it's in a negative context. I'll grant you that. But here's what encourages me about that. What encourages me as an individual Christian and should encourage you also is that this is a psalm. It's inspired. It's in our Bible. And God is allowing the children of Israel to ask him to do something. That's encouraging to me. Because when we pray, we're asking God for things. And he wants us to ask him. He wants us to come to him. The problem, of course, with this psalm, both in its context and in this first verse, is that I am coming to you, God. You, you want me to come to you, but I'm not hearing anything. I'm not seeing anything. I'm not, I'm not really seeing your response to my prayers. And so it begs the question, what is then the purpose for prayer if sometimes, maybe even you and I might say, most of the time I'm praying and there seems to be no answer from heaven. And you know what that does? It causes us to want to give up. Not just to give up in our prayer life, but just to give up altogether. Because I don't see the answers to my prayers. Don't keep silent. Don't hold your peace. Don't be still. Do something. Well, God is allowing Israel, under the Spirit's inspiration, to actually, or so it seems, ask God, why? Why? Why are you doing this to us? I don't think that's an attempt to indict God about some imperfection in his being or 
some impatience in his love. I don't believe that at all. I believe God is wanting us to pour out our hearts to him in any way that we can, save doing it by indicting him for some perceived wrong. He still wants us to come. He still wants us to ask. He still wants us to plea. And of course, this is a context that says our enemies are at the door. If there's any time not to be silent, it's right now. I need you now. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have said over and over and over again about some need you have in your life, where are you? I need you. Come to me. Meet my need. And we know from a New Testament perspective, the answer is God wants to give good gifts to his children. He loves us, cares about us, cares about our needs. The difference between my need and his response is that he knows everything. We don't. We're limited. We're limited by time and space and mental capacity. We're not omniscient as he is. So what do we do? Here's here's the first takeaway. Keep praying. Keep asking. That's Matthew 7, isn't it? Ask, seek, and knock. Keep pounding on the door. You remember in the gospel accounts where the judge is sitting there and the woman comes before him and she keeps asking and asking and asking. And finally the judge, not analogous to God himself, but just the judge in the story, and he finally says, look, I'm just going to grant her request so that she will go away. The point of that is not anything else but this one thing, and that is importunity. It's an old word. It means something like this. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep banging on the door. You may not always like the answer, but you are enjoined to keep asking. Now, that's a great takeaway for any psalm, and including this one. Here's number two. Let's call it the prayer's prompt. The prayer's prompt. What's prompting this prayer? I mean, it's one thing to plea or to plead with God for your enemies to be soundly defeated by God, God himself. He's the most powerful. He can defeat my enemies. And, uh, and what's the prompt to this prayer? Well, it's this. Asaph is calling upon God, and he's calling upon the people of God to sing to God, to pray to God, to take vengeance against those who would seek to un-God God himself. Now look, some of the times when we're reading these imprecatory psalms and we're going through it and we're saying, that sounds so unchristian, that sounds so unkind, that sounds so out of kilter with with a New Testament love ethic, ethic. it is not. Look at verse 2, verse 2, all the way through verse 5. For, notice that word for there, when you're reading along and you see Verse 1, do not keep silent, do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For, that's, that's the explanatory for. It's going to tell you why. Why, why should I not ask or, or, excuse me, stop asking God to keep silent? Why? For, here's the need, here's the prompt for the whole prayer of this psalm. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Whose enemies? The people's enemies? Yes. 
but God's enemies too. God's enemies. For your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. Now it's, now it's actually giving us a, an opportunity to understand it's not just the people of God asking God to do something arbitrary, do something just for the need meeting of the moment for the individual or from the nation as a whole or for the nation as a whole. It's this. I want you, as I'm prompted to pray, to deal with the nations that hate you. Now, that's a different kind of prayer, my friends. That's actually a godly prayer. We ought to be praying every day in some way and with some level of passion that God will vanquish all of his foes. Why? Because they hate him. They are his enemies. They hate everything about God. They don't love God. They don't want God. They don't worship God. They worship themselves. And they want, because they worship themselves, they want God to get out of the way, get out of my life. I don't want you in my life. I don't care if you think you're my creator. I'm asking you to leave and leave my life promptly. I'll take over from here. Thank you very much. That's that's what's going on here. Don't just think that this is some kind of skirmish or battle where Israel's having to go up against their foe and their foe is just trying to get some land that they think they have earned or they need and they want it from you. Oh, that's all a part of this, yes. But here's the real issue here. The psalmist is asking Israel to sing because they want God not just to come to their aid, but to realize that these nations who are coming against us hate you. And we ought to be praying that way too as Christians. God, answer your prayers for your own glory so that all men, even if they are forced to do so, will recognize the lordship of the true God of the universe. Now, we don't often pray that way, or we might say, well, we'll just let God do that. I mean, whatever he's going to do and whenever he's going to do it and whatever pace he's going to do it and whenever he seems to be in the sense of the wiseness of doing it right now versus another time or that time. No, this is, this is happening. There is a context, but we should be praying, take vengeance on those who would seek to ungod you. That's a legitimate prayer, my friends, Old or New Testament. You know, that's why verse 3 says this, they lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. That's a picturesque way of putting it, isn't it? Treasured ones. Remember, elsewhere in the Old Testament, it says that Israel was the apple of God's eye. He had them right there in his pupil. His treasured ones. And it's not just what I think my enemies are doing or, God, your enemies are doing against your people. It's also what they're saying. Look at verse 4. They say, these crafty enemy nations, they say, come, let us wipe them out. Israel, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. Now, that's some strong stuff. And do you know that from the day that was 
printed in the songbook of Israel, and of course even before that, and now up even to our own day, Israel is still having to watch 360 for all of their borders because they are still being attacked even to this very day. I mean, thousands of years. They, they live under the threat of this every day of their lives. This is the, this is the, this is the mantra of all of those nations around them. Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. You know, this is, this is like an oath. We, we're, we're wanting to craft our plans and consult and say, we're not going to rest until Israel is gone off the face of the earth. Now, do you think if you were in a context, you were an Israelite, you were living in that country, and these nations were all attempting to do that every day, you wouldn't pray a prayer like this? Of course you would. It all makes sense. Do you know that even from a New Testament context, the Apostle Paul, who was the chosen one by God, chosen even from his his mother's womb, Galatians 1 says, called by God to be the minister, the missionary to the Gentiles. And so that's what he does. You look at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. The apostle Paul is walking down the Damascus road so he could go murder some more Christians because he believed that they were anti-Jewish They were anti-Israel, which wasn't the case, of course, but that's what Paul thought, and he was trying to bring papers that not only would they be jailed, but he wanted to be complicit like he was with Stephen in murder. And then he's converted on that Damascus road. Acts chapter 9, boom. And he almost from the immediate moment begins to realize, I was wrong. The people I'm trying to to put to death are the very people for whom are now my kinsmen, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so his whole life is turned around. And now he's working for Jesus Christ. Now he's one of those who is on the way, the ones who are first called Christians in Antioch. These are these are now my brothers and sisters, and I'm wanting now, being called by God, to go out and even bring the Gentiles in, not just my brother Jews, but now also the Gentiles, the hated people by the Jews. They had nothing to do with them. And so now Paul has been a problem on one side, now he's a problem on the other side. And do you know that even up to Paul's own day, not just here in Psalm 83, but even in Paul's own day, there was an oath that was taken by the enemies of God in that day too, and the oath was, I'm not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. You think you'd be praying an imprecatory psalm or two? God, deal with them so that I could not have my throat slit? Look at Acts chapter 23. This is, this is most interesting. You want to see a New Testament example of what Psalm 83 might be talking about? This is, this is an amazing thing. It's, it's shocking, but it's also amazing. Acts chapter 23, 
Acts 23, 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot, Acts 23, 12, and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. How would you like to have that be the first order of business every morning of your life? Okay, I might be killed today. There were more, verse 13, than 40 who made this conspiracy. Now just think of Psalm 83 when it says 4, verse 5, they conspire with one accord. They make an oath. Against you, verse 5, they make a covenant. This This is the New Testament version. These 40 men are making a covenant, a a conspiratorial covenant. Verse 14, they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. Now you know that there's intrigue, there's espionage going. You say why you're bringing him. It's under false pretenses, and when he's here, we're going to kill him. We're ready to kill him before he comes near. And, and don't you know that there might be a context in which somebody even including Paul himself, would say, I think I need to pray. I think I need to go before the Lord. And do you see what happens? Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, of course, heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. I suspect the first thing Paul did was pray to God immediately, right? Now, it may not have been even a selfish prayer. It may have just been, Lord, Keep me alive longer so that I can continue to communicate the gospel to others. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. (laughs) That's an understatement, isn't it? So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And Paul survived. I do not believe that that came about without prayer. And don't you know Paul might have had another prayer? And Lord, not only foil their plans, but foil them because they're your enemies. And isn't it so very ironic that I'm giving you an example of Acts 23 where the Jews, 40 of them, are intent on destroying Paul and the Jews of Psalm 83 are asking about non-Jews who are trying to do the same thing, destroy them? 
That's because the Jews of Acts 23 are not believers in Jesus Christ. So, is this not a prompt to prayer? If, if this is not a prompt to prayer, I don't know what is. Number three, number three, the prayer's problem. Not just the prayer's plea, the plea of the prayer, not just the prompt of the prayer. Why are we praying and why are we praying like this? Here's the prayer's problem. Say, so what's the problem? I'll tell you the problem. Ten warring nations have surrounded Israel. Ten warring nations have surrounded Israel. That's what it says in verses 6, 7, and 8. The tents of Edom, that's one. The Ishmaelites, two. Moab, three. Hagrites, four. Gebal, five. Ammon, six. Amalek, seven. Philistia, eight. Tyre, nine. Asher, or even Assyria, maybe in your Bibles, has also joined them. Ten nations. Ten nations. And we don't want to get into it tonight, but it's a fascinating study about who all of these people are, their, their names, the names of their countries, as it were, the names of their tribes, as it were. Fascinating study. Gives you great insight both not only into the, the origins of these people, who they were, why they're against Israel, but also geographically where they're located. And if you found yourself on a map looking at all ten of these they almost perfectly have Israel surrounded. I would say that's a problem. (laughs) That is a problem. You might see it in a cartoon and laugh. You see it in real life, you don't laugh. They've got us all surrounded. And by the way, most of these people groups, if you study them, They've been a thorn in the side of Israel for as long as Israel can remember. They always keep coming back. They always want to do their damage. No wonder at the end of verse 8 it says, Selah. Take a pause. Take a break. Think about it. You've got ten nations. Now, I don't want to trivialize and over-spiritualize this, but I don't know about you, but sometimes I think I've got 10 problems, maybe more, sometimes less. I don't want to spiritualize this. This is a real war. These are real people. But I think you and I can apply the principle at least. The problem of prayer is often this. I've got a lot of uncooperative people in my life, even those who are so uncooperative, they don't want to love God, they don't want to follow God. This is a problem. And you know, this is, this is nothing new for Israel. Perhaps maybe a place where we could go just to summarize the prayer's problem is Second Chronicles 20. I want you to go there for a moment. Do you remember Jehoshaphat? In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, this might be the summary of at least one skirmish, one fight, one conflagration of marauding rogue nations who are coming against Israel. And Jehoshaphat, what does he do? 
Well, he does exactly what Psalm 83 says you've got to do, and that's pray. You've got to pray about this. If you've got 10 nations surrounding you in order to wipe you out, you best pray. And he does. Chapter 20, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, those are two of them that are listed here in Psalm 83, two of the nations, and with them some of the Munyanites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom. That's actually another group from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. I'm assuming in Psalm 83, the, the reason why they're praying is because, in part, they're afraid. They're fearful, just like here. And what does he do when he's afraid? He set his face to seek the Lord, verse 3. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. This is serious time now. Verse 5, and Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? This This might be like a Sort of a divine commentary uh, that accentuates Psalm 83.1. Lord, where are you? What about this seeming silence? We need to hear from you, Lord. Are you not the God in in heaven? You rule over all kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He's appealing to God about Israel's history and God's covenant and God's promise. Verse 8, and they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction. That's exactly what's going on in Psalm 83. And you will hear and say. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, that is, what you have given us to possess the land, which you have given us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? This is an imprecatory idea, isn't it? Judge them, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. And I would say, Psalm 83, we got 10 of them there, and they're all surrounding us. What are we going to do? Lord, you're silent. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. But what a great statement in our Bibles. You know, when you don't know how to pray, you don't know exactly what to pray, but you're under it and you're under it big time, just say something like this. Here's my prayer. My eyes are on you. Certainly not on me, my prowess, my intelligence, my might, my power. Verse 13, meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord. That's just Jehoshaphat praying, of course. Now, what about the people? Well, they were standing before the Lord, too, with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And, of course, I think the Bible adds that because they're saying, and what about my kids? What about my dear wife? What's going to become of them? 
I love them. I'm here to protect them. But I can't stand against all of these rogue nations. Help. Verse 14, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. Oh boy, the sons of Asaph. Isn't that most interesting? And he said, this one who the Spirit of the Lord was coming upon him, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not find the fight in this battle. Stand, uh, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. What comforting words. What an answer to prayer. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. That's his humility. That's his kingly duty in front of the people and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. That's the right response. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. You know what they're doing? They're doing exactly what Psalm 83 calls upon the children of Israel to do, and that's to sing. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. And they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever." They ask for singing. And I pray tell might assume that in times of great fright, the last thing we would do is sing. But they're singing. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon. Notice how that's tied to singing. As soon as they started to sing and praise the Lord, an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed, defeated. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. I just put them in confusion. Verse 24, when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka, or Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. That Baraka, that name, it means blessing. 
Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Baraka to this day, the Valley of Blessing. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. And I know somebody's going to say, it made them rejoice over their enemies. That just sounds downright non-Christian. Rejoicing over your enemies. Well, yeah, because your enemies were about to slit your throat. You survived and they didn't, and by God's hand, you'd be rejoicing and so would I. They came to Jerusalem, verse 28, with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they'd heard that the Lord, Yahweh, had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for God gave him rest all around. Oh, my dear friends. It comes, I say, by prayer and song. Prayer and song. You're vanquishing the problem because you're praying and singing. How about number four, the prayer's pattern? The prayer's pattern. You say, what's, what's the pattern here? Look at verses 9 to 12. I'll tell you the pattern. When Israel looks at what's happened in their past. They call on God to do some of the same things that they saw. And here it is, verse 9. Think about that 2 Chronicles 20. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. That verse 12 is, let us rout Israel, let us take all of their land, let us take all of their possessions. And according to Second Chronicles 20, it was the reverse. It took us three days to, took all their, to take all their spoil, all their gold, all their precious stuff, their clothing. Every man, every single one of them, there was not one who escaped. They were all defeated And now he's saying in verses 9 to 12, oh, and some of those examples that's in our history, we're asking you to do the same thing now to what's against us. We want you to continue the pattern through our prayer of being faithful to your people. That's the pattern we're asking for. Now, of course, there were times that the Lord didn't let them win in battle, And the pattern was broken at least for a while. Why? Because Israel was cocky or proud or arrogant or sinful, like at Ai, just to use one example. And sometimes the the pattern is broken because Israel needs a lesson or two. You remember in the book of Habakkuk. Why? Why are you coming against your people with these marauding rogue nations around us? God says, don't I have the right? Don't I have the right to discipline my people, break the pattern, and use wicked nations. And oh, by the way, if I use a wicked nation against my own people to set them aright, to chastise them, I will also deal with that rogue nation when the time comes. So that's what's happening. Number five, the prayer's punishment. Look at verse 13. 
And notice these three illustrations, these three examples, these three metaphors. Whirling dust, verse 13, fire, verse 14, and water, verse 15. Oh, my God, verse 13, make them like whirling dust. Make them like a tumbleweed that just blows in the wind like chaff. Just just blow them away. Blow our enemies in the dust away from us. That's how they're praying for the appropriate punishment against their enemies. Verse 14, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, Do that same thing to these ungodly people who hate you. And then verse 15, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. We might say, and certainly I did all those years living in the South, wipe them out like a tornado, just ripping through an area. That's what we want you to do to our enemies because they hate you. Punish them. This is a prayer. This is a song for the sake of powerful punishment to be brought on those who hate the God of Israel. I mean, you you look at this prayer and you see the facets of it, the plea, the prompt, the problem, the pattern, the punishment, and now six, the pain, the prayer's pain. And this is painful. Look at verse 16 and 17, fill their faces with shame. Why? For what purpose? That they may seek your name, O Lord. Don't miss that verse. You see, this is where you really have to look and read carefully for comprehension. This song of Israel is not saying something like this, wipe them out because not only are they trying to attack us, but we take wonderful glee at their outcome. Notice what he says. He goes upward. He goes vertical. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. This is like an evangelistic prayer plea. We're not asking for this for our own vengeance sake in glee. We're not clapping our hands and saying, oh, our enemies have been defeated. Hallelujah. And I have so much glee when I see them die at my feet. Not at all. This is for one reason and one reason alone. Protection, yes, but protection for a purpose. And what is that purpose? That they may seek you, the only God. Because without seeking you, they're going to die anyway, even if they don't die in battle. And when they do, they're going to hell. This is actually a, a prayer of hope that they'll finally get it. They'll finally understand Yes, sometimes a person who needs to know the Lord Jesus Christ has to be shamed, brought to the end of themselves. They've, they've made a mockery of their lives. They, they've pursued everything except God, wine, women, and song, money, sex, and power, 
And they found it all a desperate nothing. And they've been shamed about how they've wrecked their lives. And it's for this purpose that they may seek your name, O Lord. You see, that's a righteous prayer. See, find, find a verse like that, a half a verse, sometimes even a word or a phrase within a verse that actually lets you know that imprecatory psalms are there for a purpose, and usually it's a purpose that God would be glorified, the true God. Verse 17, let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. In other words, pain is the path oftentimes to God. Pain is often the very path to God. I'm in so much pain, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I don't know whom to talk to. And the answer is, in your pain, by your pain, through the traversing of your pain, God is right there. There's almost always, if we're honest with ourselves and we think God is seemingly silent, pain, pain in our hearts. Ask God through your pain to do what he alone can do. And number seven and last, the prayer's point. The plea, the prompt, the problem, the pattern, the punishment, the pain, and lastly, the point. What is the point? Verse 18. That, it's a purpose clause, that they may know that you alone whose name is Yahweh. Do you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? That's the name of our God, Yahweh. Best we can put it together, Y-H-W-H, the tetragrammaton, throwing some vowels, and it is Yahweh. That they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. El Elyon. That's the whole point of the prayer. That's the whole point. Don't always get stuck on the imprecation. Don't get stuck on the seeming silence of God. Here's the answer. When God chooses in His time and place to answer a prayer, it is always for this reason chiefly and principally, so that we would know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the El Elyon, the Most High over all the earth. God remains God. That's the point. Here's how you apply it to your life. Lord, I'm reading Psalm 83 this morning in my devotional, and here's what I've concluded, that you alone, you, Yahweh, are the Most High over all the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this prayer, this song, is so very, very needed. It's not a reprehensible song. It's not a Song, though it is a lament and an imprecative plea on the part of God's people to wipe out those who are the enemies of God, it is 
a plea that the entire earth would ascribe the glory that alone belongs to the Most High over all the earth, Yahweh Himself. May this be our prayer tonight, tomorrow morning in our Bible reading through the year, tomorrow night and every day. May we pray prayers like this, even when at times you seem in such silence to us. You're not, because there's a plan, and you will speak when you, when you so choose. And we keep praying, and we ask you, give us hope that the whole world would see that you are El Elyon, the Most High over all the earth. We love you. We thank you for saving us, for granting us eternal life in Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel who comes one day to judge the living and the dead and to vanquish all his foes, even as we learned this morning from Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He kills the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth, and he stamps out all of those who hate him and his heavenly Father. And we are waiting for that day. We may not be alive on this earth as we are now, when that day comes, but we will be there. And when we are, we trust we'll be in the air with you and as you come back to rule and reign forever and ever, we will be on the winning side. Answer our prayers. Thank you for answering the prayers of those who were true Israelites and that you have continued to protect true Israel. And you will continue to do so. And you have protected us, the church, and you will continue to do so. And one day we will all be worshiping together as one, the one people of God. And we will be singing our hallelujahs and perhaps... We'll even be singing Psalm 83 in your precious, wonderful, and powerful name we pray. Amen.